0: that you continue to lavish your grace upon us. We thank you that we can experience this grace um, in a way that is uh, very tangible to us in the sense that your, your spirit brings to us an awareness of being forgiven uh, through singing songs of faith and hope. Lord God, we can also experience the joy that comes to us through knowing Christ and that uh, salvation that is offered to us <clears throat> and guaranteed as well. And, the inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. We ask now, Lord God, that as we come to your word, you would indeed encourage us. Um, It can be hard sometimes, Father, to follow you. Um, It can be hard sometimes to trust you when we cannot see or understand uh, what you are doing in our life and through the, the people around us. But we know, because of what Christ has shown us and how your spirit reminds us, we know that all the things that we experience are designed not only to make us Uh, like Christ more and more, but to perfect our faith, to draw us closer to you, and that in in every circumstance, Father, you have given us the uh, the means and the opportunity and the motivation to pass and to succeed uh, in these various trials that you will lead us into. Uh, knowing, Lord God, that as we even experience blessing, these are things for which we can give you thanks. So we pray now you would speak to us through your word, and that you would encourage us to pursue Christ with a greater faithfulness as you hold firmly to us by your great love and steadfast loyalty. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So last week we looked at uh, Peter's uh, introduction to his letter, and he begins with this Trinitarian formula of having uh, uh, notified us that we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. And that introductory exhortation reminds me, uh, as we connect it with what he now says in the text for this morning, um, it reminds me of an old uh, hymn. We've not sung it here and. In fact, I myself have not sung it. I've heard the chorus uh, sung at various places, but it's an old hymn uh, called We Have an Anchor. And the first stanza of that old hymn begins with uh, a series of questions. Uh, Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfurl their wings of strife? When the storm tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? In the second stanza, then goes on to make a very confident claim about our anchor. It is safely moored, twill the storm withstand, for tis well secured by the Savior's hand. And the cables passed from his heart to mine can defy the blast through strength divine. And then the chorus, we have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded, firm, and deep in the Savior's love. I like that hymn because the message of that hymn really is in tune with the overall theme of our text for this morning. That the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is blessed... Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And with all of that come the blessings that flow out of that sovereign act. We have an anchor that keeps the soul because God the Father, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all has graciously given to us and will continue to give to us everything we need to keep following Jesus. We have an anchor which cannot move because God the Holy Spirit has been given and granted to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until we take possession of it. And that Holy Spirit now holds us fast to the one who is our rock and our redeemer. So we are able to stand and to Hold on to Christ because he holds on to us through every storm and trial. And since we are chosen by God according to his foreknowledge, since we have been sealed with his Holy Spirit, we then have everything we need to keep following Jesus. Remember, Peter is writing primarily to people who did not grow up within Judaism. Who did not grow up with the understanding of God's sovereign care and protection for his people, They, most of them were pagans who came out of a pagan background where the gods had to be constantly placated, lest you somehow earn their disfavor and things go wrong for you. So here, Peter is reminding them and encouraging them that the God that we follow, the God that has chosen us, the God that has placed his spirit in us, is not like the pagan conceptions of God is not even like the popular conception that many have about God, the God of the Bible, even in our own day. That it's, not, a dependent, it's not, uh, not dependent upon our morality, not dependent upon any innate goodness in and of ourselves, but upon his sovereign grace, mercy, and love. These are the things that he imparts to us for the very purpose of following Christ faithfully Uh, through our life so we have everything that we need uh, to follow Jesus no matter how badly the world around us treats us that we have everything we need to follow Jesus despite even whatever we think about ourselves and some of us maybe come here this morning and we're nagged by this idea I'm not really the kind of Christian that God wants me to be and I'm not really sure why I'm here I don't know if I belong here I don't even know if I'm a believer in Christ well, if that's you, then take heart because this passage is an encouragement that it doesn't matter what we think about ourselves, it matters what God thinks about us. And God has pursued us and God has sought us and God has surrounded us and enveloped us with his love. He has filled us with his spirit. He has lavished his grace upon us. Even when we were sinners. Even when we were his enemies. So if a God can redeem and save people who were his enemies, imagine, imagine how God can uphold Stand by and provide for those whom he's adopted into his own family, upon whom he's lavished his grace, his mercy, and love. So if you come here this morning somehow bedraggled and beaten down by any sort of self-doubt or even self-pity, be encouraged. You have a living hope. In a living Savior. And Peter lists the, the things that God has given to us in order to keep us hopeful in following Christ. Many of you know that last year, Jill and I went uh, camping for two weeks last summer. And Before we went camping, we made an extensive uh, checklist of the things that we needed to bring with us so we could you know, rough it for two weeks in a tent. Well, Peter, in essence, gives us a similar list of things that God has given to us so, that while we live here as exiles, even though we are citizens of this nation and even citizens of this state, we understand that our true citizenship is in heaven. And so we feel a disconnect between our culture because we are beholden to follow the cultural dictates and mandates of another kingdom. And so, Peter then lists the various things that God has given and equipped us with to help us follow him. And so, he, he lists them. And, verses 3 through 12. He's caused us, has God, to be born again to a living hope in a resurrected Savior. He has given us an indestructible inheritance. He guards us with the power of His protection. He's given us a durable faith that is more precious than gold. And He's given us a joy that is both inexpressible and full of glory. And He has given us a faith to believe the gospel of our salvation. We're going to unpack these uh, as we move quickly through the passage. So God has caused us to be born again to a living hope in a resurrected Savior. That that phrase, born again, is probably familiar to many of us who have either grown up in a church or who have come to faith in Christ. It was a term that became very popular uh, when I became a Christian in the late 70s because uh, I think President Jimmy Carter was known as the born-again president, and what, what, what did all that mean? The phrase itself is a biblical term. It's used here in 1 Peter, and it first appears in the Gospel of John. Jesus is having a conversation at night with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus to talk with him and to say, Look, we have seen and observed and heard all the things that you have said and done, and we know that you must be sent from God, because no man can do the things you do and say the things you do unless he's been sent from God. And Jesus, in response to this very flattering assessment by a religious leader, says something that Nicodemus did not expect him to say. After praising Jesus for the things that he'd done and even flattering him by saying, well, obviously you must be sent from God, Jesus' responds, truly I truly Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's Completely out of context of what Nicodemus said, but what Jesus is saying there is unless one has a spiritual rebirth, unless one is born from above by an act of God through the work of the Holy Spirit, through hearing the gospel, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, you're partly right. I am sent from God, but you've missed the point of my coming if you don't understand that the things I am doing, the things I'm saying, are for the very purpose of leading you and anyone else who believes in me to be born spiritually from above through an act of God because we are dead in our trespasses and sins in the spiritual context. Unless we are spiritually made alive by God the Holy Spirit... A process which the theologians will call regeneration, we cannot respond to the preaching of the gospel. So Peter starts off by saying, it is God who has caused this, that salvation is an act of God, and it's an act of God's mercy, that when we were dead in our transgresses and sins, God in his mercy, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And he does this because he is a, a merciful God. Salvation is also an act of God's grace, this fact that we're born again. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. So you think Peter's writing to people who are going through difficult times, and they're wondering, Can I, do I have the stuff to get through this? He's writing to us thousands of years later who also are going through various trials. Some minor, some major, some in between. But our faith is always being put to the test. And we wonder, will we make it? And the assurance we have is yes, we will. Why? Because the faith that is being tested is not your faith. It's a faith that's been given to you by God as a gift. And when God gives a gift, there are two things that you can count on. He won't take it back and you can never lose it. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. He just gives it to you. So God will never revoke our citizenship in his kingdom. He will never disown us. He'll never write us out of his will. And Just as important, no one else can either. Not even ourselves. Look, if God has gripped your heart, if he has taken hold of your life by an act of sovereign grace, nothing and no one on earth or under the earth can separate you That's what it means to be born again by faith in Christ. Again, if God did not spare His own Son in order to cause us to be born again, what is there that's going to keep us or separate us from Him? What is going to keep Him from helping us to keep following Jesus? The answer is nothing. Nothing. We can keep following Jesus because God the Father has adopted us into His family. He's given us a new life. He's given us a new heart. He's given us a new family. He's given us a new hope. Peter calls this hope a living hope. He doesn't just call it this one thing. It's it's active. It's dynamic. It's a growing hope. It's a hope that grows day by day, daily, as we pursue Christ, as we follow him. It's not static, the same way as our faith is not static. It's a faith and a hope that's meant to grow and increase in its strength and vitality the more that we follow Christ. There's an appetite that he wants to create in us. I want more of this hope. I want more of this faith. I want more of what God has for me. Hope is one of my favorite words in the Bible because it's, it's, it expresses, we have in our, in, uh, in our English language, we have transformed hope into kind of a wishful thinking. Like, you know, if you're going on an outing, you, you hope it doesn't rain or you hope your car doesn't break down or something like that as if it's sort of in might. Not come about, but when the Bible uses the word hope, it's um, it expresses a confident certainty in that the thing that is hoped for will happen. It's the, the I mean, when you get into your car in the morning. You know, before you push the button or turn the key, if you still have a car that starts with a key, because they're all push button now, most of them, you don't sit there and and the driver's saying, I hope the car starts. You just press the button and it starts. Why? Because you're so sure the thing is going to start, you don't even think about it. That's the kind of confidence that Peter is talking about that we have. That there's no doubt about the hope. There's no doubt about God sustaining us, upholding us, bringing us safely through the trials of this world into his ultimate glory and presence at the end of time. A living hope is fixed firmly on a living Savior, is what Peter says. A Savior whom God has raised from the dead. And miracle of miracles, the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power he used to raise us from spiritual death to give us new life and the same power that he will use to raise us from the grave and have us seated in those heavenly places at the end of time. The same power that he exercises to help us succeed and walk through various trials in this life. That's the kind of certainty the Bible refers to when, he talks, when it talks about hope. When you think about the things that people put hope in these days. In Psalm 20, from a biblical perspective, David says this about the futility of putting hope, of putting our hope in anything but God. He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Chariots and horses collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Now, if you know anything about the ancient world, particularly ancient warfare, uh, you know that chariots and horses were terrifying weapons of war in David's time. And what he says here is that, look, we're not afraid of chariots and horses because we trust in someone that is more fearsome than a chariot, and our hope is in someone more powerful more terrifying even than a horse. David and his companions can rise and they can stand upright. They don't cower in fear as the army walks or charges toward them because their trust is in the Lord. We have that same hope. We have that same confidence. We have that same faith to to rise and stand. It's the same confidence that Jesus demonstrates in the Garden of Gethsemane when after asking that the cup of suffering and sorrow and wrath about to be poured out on him will pass from him, but accepts that as God's will. It's the same faith and confidence that causes Jesus to rise from kneeling in prayer and confront those who have come to arrest him, And when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus doesn't sort of push the disciples forward, it's one of these guys. He says, I am he. And then they all fall down. It's the same kind of confidence that causes us to rise and stand in the face of anything that life or others will put in our way to try to obscure or block us from following Christ. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who in offering himself as a perfect sacrifice, has also defeated and destroyed death. Again, you think of things that we put our hope in because chariots and horses have been replaced by work, career, self-identity, seeking social media influence, family, honor, maybe a host of other things that we think will give us the satisfaction and the peace that we long for. Our brother Randy listed some others as well, in terms of with anger or bitterness or pornography or lust or anything else that we seek is somehow is going to satisfy what we are truly needing and longing, which is the peace that comes from God himself. All of those things are just cotton candy compared to a living hope and a living savior whom God sent to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and that by his death on the cross and resurrection destroyed death forever. That's having a living hope. It's having a living hope and a living Savior who is able to sympathize with us on our weaknesses. Because it's very easy, I know from personal experience, when you go through a difficult time, as Peter's readers are, we, there's a part of us that retreats from the world and we... we maybe have an adult beverage or some other kind of beverage or some other kind of medication, and we seek to feel sorry for ourselves because no one knows the trouble I'm knowing. But the end of that hymn says, nobody knows like Jesus. Because whatever trial, whatever pain, whatever anguish we feel, Jesus felt it multiplied by infinity. Whatever weakness we feel in the face of overwhelming news Loss of job, loss of relationship, loss of income, death of a loved one, our own impending death in the sense of our own mortality, that weakness, that fear, that anxiety, understand and know that Jesus felt that as well. But he rose and he stood because his confidence was not in those things but in the one who had called him, the one with whom he had covenanted to stand in our place, and to receive the cross before he would receive the crown. We have a high priest, the writer of Hebrews says, who is tempted in all things as we are. But he didn't sin. He's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He knows the pain. He knows the power of that temptation. And he gives us the faith to withstand it. That's what it means to have a living hope. It means knowing and trusting, as we read from the passage in Jeremiah that the plans God has for us are for our welfare. They are to give us a future and a hope. So, on one level, what that is saying is, whatever plans you have made that have somehow turned awry, that in the, in the purest sense, you really can't screw up your life. Because even that, God can use to turn you toward him. Why was Israel going to Babylon in Jeremiah? Because they messed up big time. But God said, you're going to go into exile, then I'm going to bring you back. Because it's while you're in exile, it's while you're mourning the bad decisions that you've made, that's where I'm going to find you. And that's how you're going to find me, in that mourning. Because you're going to realize that all the things that you have put your hope in are dead Except one thing only, and that's me, and it 's only when everything else that we have put our hope in has died, then we see our hope is only in God and God alone, and at that point he says, if you seek me, you will with all your heart, you will find me, because I have brought you to that point where you have no other hope except me, except me. when Jesus knew I mean I understand that there will come a time that my career will end, my health will fail, my my mind will not be as sharp uh, as it is now, but if my hope is in my career, if it's in my health, if it's in my mental fitness, I'm going to be devastated when I lose them. But if my hope is in Christ... As Paul says, I can suffer the loss of all things, just give me Jesus. Peter is communicating that to his readers. You can lose everything on earth, but you'll never lose the one thing, the one person that matters, and that's Christ. And remember, Peter was there on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and he heard Jesus say these words. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to die, in John 14, 1-3, said these things. He told the apostles, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you also, you may be also. Later that same night, Jesus says this in John sixteen thirty three. There's a long discourse that Jesus starts. It starts in John uh, 14. It runs through John 16, and ends in the high priestly prayer in John 17. At the end of chapter 16, Jesus says, "I have said all these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I overcome the world." So we have this tendency, I referred to it last week, we have this tendency as Christians to believe that as soon as we give our heart and life to Christ, that it's just a primrose path of lightness and joy, that it's just a smooth, smooth path toward glory. And the moment, the very first time we encounter a trial or difficulty, something that causes us distress, we begin to panic and think, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. It's, we, we, it's the, it's the uh, Israel wandering in the wilderness syndrome. Moses, Moses, Israel would complain. Were well, there are not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us here out in the wilderness to die? Yeah, I know that God parted the Red Sea, Moses, but now we're thirsty. Can you really? I mean, we're going to die of thirst here. Is that what you want, Moses? And by the way, can you give us food, please, because we're starving out here. And you begin to, that same kind of thinking goes along with when we go through difficult times. Yeah, yeah, I know, Lord, you provide the rent. I know you provide my career. But, you know, I really need this one thing. If I don't have this one thing, all of that other stuff doesn't really matter because I'm judging you on your ability to provide this one thing. And if you fail, all of that other stuff is like a bunch of dominoes. It just falls down. Nonsense. The very things we experience, the good and the bad, are all designed to perfect our faith in Christ. So for people who are suffering, people who are going through pain, having a living hope means fixing your eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, Who, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set out for him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. <clears throat> his work is finished, and it is carried on through the work of his Holy Spirit, who leads us through these various trials. So our hope is not some sort of desperate fixation on a faded dream. But it's one that's fastened to a rock which cannot move. Grounded, firm and deep in the Savior's love. A Savior who was dead but is now alive forever. This hope, I encourage you to read Hebrews 6. This hope, says the writer of Hebrews, is like an anchor that is fixed within the veil of God's holy temple. Because that hope that we have, that anchor, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has secured our salvation by his death and resurrection and ascension. And the fact that he has sat down tells us that his work of salvation is finished. It is carried on through the work of the Spirit. But we don't need to save ourselves. We don't need to prove our morality to God or our goodness because in God's presence even now, is a very embodiment of goodness, righteousness, holiness, and perfection. So as long as our trust and hope is in Christ, we have a living hope, because we have a living Savior. And God has caused us to have this hope by an act of mercy and grace. And he has also given us an indestructible inheritance. Verse 4, Peter describes... Our inheritance as being imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And there are some descriptions there. So to say that our inheritance is imperishable means it's not subject to rot or decay. I think of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 6. You know, don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust can destroy and thieves break in and steal. Our inheritance is safe. It's permanent. It's not affected by government policies or the rising and falling of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's undefiled. We don't have to compromise our moral or religious principles in order to gain this inheritance. We don't have to violate our ethics. What we have to do is confess the fact that we're sinners in need of salvation and the grace of God. Acknowledge the fact I'm not moral. (laughs) I'm not ethical. And I'm not very spiritual. Unless and until... The Holy Spirit makes me yield to the words of Christ and the grace of God. And it's also unfading. Anybody, like I said on the board there, anybody who's ever bought green bananas at the grocery store knows about this. Right? Because sometimes those green bananas, when you take them off the rack, by the time you get home, they're starting to get spots. And if you don't eat them within three days, it's either time to make banana bread or use them for compost. Our inheritance is not like that. It doesn't fade. It doesn't wilt. It doesn't go away. The good news is we don't have to wait <laughs> to enjoy our inheritance. Not in a prosperity gospel way, understand. But faith, hope, love, are these not part of our inheritance? Jesus, when he prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, "...this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus whom you have sent." So we can experience part of that inheritance through a pursuit of knowing God, of practicing our faith. The very fact that we wake up each day is an aspect of that inheritance, that God has breathed life into us on a daily basis, that he continues to lavish his grace upon us to make us more and more prepared and ready for that day. The peace that we can experience God's willingness even to listen to our laments. To comfort us in our sorrow. And to enhance and increase our joy. Those, I think, are part of that inheritance that we can experience even now. This inheritance, right, can't be destroyed. I mean, an earthly inheritance, it can be destroyed. It can be stolen. It can be misspent. And people spend a lot of money... Um, to secure the safety of their homes, but God really did the same thing to protect our inheritance. He gave his only begotten son to secure it forever. Then he gave us his Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until we take possession of it. And not only is our inheritance guaranteed, that's one thing, that's a blessing in and of itself. But Peter goes on to say, we also are protected by God's power. Right there in verse 5, right? Who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm going to test your memory here. When we went through the series of Zechariah, Zechariah 2.5, there's this marvelous prophecy that God makes through the prophet to the people of Jerusalem. He tells this, the people there that Jerusalem will be a city inhabited without walls which was not a common or wise thing to do in the ancient world, because walls meant protection and security and all of that. Why will Jerusalem be a city without walls? Because God tells the people, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Peter may not have had Zechariah in mind when he wrote his letter, but follow the imagery here. Outside are the forces that would seek to sort of deter us and dissuade us and distract us from following God. They're out there. It's undeniable. we know them. We feel that disconnect. But we are surrounded by a protective wall. It becomes the basis of the old hymn that by salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. So we have the ability to walk through. The crowd, if you will, seeking to destroy us because our hope is in the one who has not only guaranteed our inheritance but guarantees our protection forever. That we cannot be separated from the love of God. And we experience this protection by faith. Faith which is a gift from God. Faith that enables us to trust God when he says, I will be a wall of fire all around you. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. Faith that motivates us to obey God's command, to be strong and courageous, to believe in God and believe also in me, as Jesus says. And the goal of that is that we might be kept until that day of salvation when Jesus comes to finally deliver all of his saints and to finally establish his kingdom. Until then, God promises To be that wall of fire around us. His glory in our midst. And until that day, nothing on earth, nothing under the earth, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 38 and 39. Then we have a durable faith. That is more precious than gold. I, I read this section here about our, our faith being tested by various trials. And I'm reminded of, of you know, if you remember the, the parable of, of the four soils that Jesus spoke. A sower goes out to sow and he casts his seed on, some, uh, on the path and then on some rocky ground and then among thorns and then on good soil. And you know, the first three soils, the, the birds come Pick it away, it grows up quickly in the rocky soil, and then the sun comes and it withers. It grows into thorns, but as it grows, the weeds and thorns choke it out, but on the good soil it produces. Peter is sharing what he shares here, I think, with that parable in mind. Because he wants us, he wants his readers to be good soil and to know that God, having chosen us according to his foreknowledge, In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ and for sprinkling in his blood, God has made us good soil. And he has made it possible for us to bear fruit. But when you think about a seed that's growing in the ground, think about the work that that seed has to do in order to pop up through the soil as it makes its way toward the sun. Think about the strength that seed has to demonstrate. Pushing through (laughs) dirt and rock and soil. Faith is a gift, but it's also something that we exercise. And Peter is encouraging his readers that faith will be tried and it will be tested by various trials. I, I recently listened to a sermon by Tim Keller on Psalm 11. And in, this verse, in the sermon he quotes Psalm 11 in verse 5. He says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the ones who love violence. And he focused on the fact that the Lord tests the righteous. He says the Lord tests the righteous in order to expose the faulty foundations upon which they have built their faith. I think the trials that God leads us through do the very same thing. In order to perfect our faith the same way that a metallurgist perfects silver, by heat. When you think about it, our faith grows when it's tested. I'm I'm not a a physical trainer, but I I talked to a guy some years ago who was doing some lifting. And and his his regimen required him that he did heavy lifting and then he rested, like a day. And then he would lift again and then he would rest. And, And while he was resting, while he was not lifting, he was still eating right, he was getting plenty of sleep, he was maybe running or doing some other kind of physical activity, he just wasn't lifting weights. And I think our faith being tested is like that moment when you go and you're just lifting weights and you're just putting a lot of stress on those muscles and you're straining them and you're training them, you're making them strong, and then you rest. You're letting them recover, but at the same time you're letting them recover, you're still doing the things that you're doing to stay healthy. There are times when we go through periods where everything is fine. Every decision we make is the right one, every relationship is a good one, our health is good, that's the rest. And then when suddenly the relationship goes sour, the health is threatened, work becomes more stressful, now you're doing the lifting. You're doing the lift, But you've prepared for that. Because even while you were resting, you were still active in your faith, or you should have been, so that you're ready when the time of testing comes. My, my son... My oldest son, when he first started working for the engineering firm that he's at now, he began as a test engineer. And he really liked it because it meant he got to break things. And he was testing uh, gears for transmissions and transaxles from car manufacturers all around the world. And they would send them their, their transmission gears and differential gears and all these things. And they said, you know, just put them through the most grueling test and break them. Because we want to know if there's any defect in our manufacturing process. And most of the time, all of the gears pass. But when the gears broke down, they wrote a report. They sent it off to the manufacturer. And the manufacturer did what was necessary. There are times when God tests us like that. And that even when we break, it's for the purpose of saying, let's go back and see how and what caused the break. Why, did you, why was it a breakdown? What were you doing? What were you thinking? Leading up to that moment when you were broken. Doesn't mean God has abandoned you. Doesn't mean God is cruel. Doesn't mean God is unjust. Because like the old expression goes, you don't know what you don't know. And you don't know, and the only way to find out what you don't know is to be broken. Is to have your faith put to the test. To use the knowledge you have up to that point. The knowledge you have gained to realize how much more knowledge is needed. No one is born with faith. No one is born again with perfect faith. So when your faith is tested by various trials, and believe me, trials aren't just illness. It could be a flat tire. It could be a series of car expenses. It could be a leak in your house that ruins an entire floor. It could be just an annoying neighbor that just insists on playing music of any kind. Or like the guy in my neighborhood who has his car as a walking studio, a driving studio. You can hear him like a quarter, boom, 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 boom And it just gets louder. That's great if it's at eight o'clock, uh, uh, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. At seven in the morning or 2 a.m., just go to sleep, Michael. Not a thing you can do about it. Right? So there are moments right, that God tests us so they realize, cause to, to learn what we don't know. That's why tests are given in school. Teachers don't want you to fail. Show me what you know. Show me what you've learned. Do the test. And if you get a good mark, great. Now here's more material to learn. If you get a failing, grade, Well, let's go back and see where you need to improve. Some years ago, while taking a, 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 my course in, um, I got my doctorate ministry for preaching. Hannon Robinson was our, our professor. He, he gave us a formula for how God brings about change, and transformation in our lives. It's up on the board: pain plus time plus insight equals change. I like that, right? Because that tells me that there's a purpose for the pain. That God allows us to endure. And that it needs time. And then it needs insight. And then it produces change. When God calls you to follow Christ, you're going to go through tough times, says Peter. Our hope, however, is that when we are grieved by various trials, God is using those trials to bring about the necessary change to make us more and more like Christ. Remember, he's a good father. And a good father trains and disciplines his children so that we will grow more and more into the likeness of his son. And then the, the, the last part here is that God has given us a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Um, all of this joy that is inexpressible is a result of having a living hope. It's based also on the knowledge that someday Jesus is coming back. And we get to show to him all of the things that we have done as a result of being brought into relationship with him. It's like when I was uh, when our kids were younger, they couldn't wait till I got home to show me some magnificent work of art that they had created while I was at work. They just were, you know, and it's you know just a couple of stick figures with a tree, but that they had worked on it all day. We we're working on the same thing. It may be better than stick figures, but we want to show him what we have done with the inheritance that he has promised to us and with the gifts he has already given to us. It's an inexpressible joy because it it defies all outward circumstances. The the, the biblical sense of joy is a defiant nevertheless. It's not this, yay, not like the Jacksonville fans who were rooting when their team came back from a 27-0 deficit against the Chargers. It's it's a it's a, a joy that sustains. Um, it's full of glory because it looks forward to the day of Christ's return. Think of um, think of a bride and groom preparing for their wedding day. Right? There's a lot of there's a lot of joy involved there, but there's a lot of stress as well, right? But they're looking forward to a day, an event, that all of that preparation will finally result in a glorious day, or a mother and father anticipating the birth of their first child. Their hope and their joy is fixed upon an event, or an artist who's just toiling over a canvas waiting for the moment when they can finally stand back and say, I'm done, or a sculptor who's releasing whatever is captured in that stone so that it can be, it can sort of be seen by everyone else. The day of its unveiling is a day of great joy, a day of, 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 of motivated by hope. Hope in Christ looks forward to that kind of experience, a kind of relief that lasts forever, a relief that comes from hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, enter to the joy of your master. <laughs> And this faith is is given that we might believe in the gospel, says uh, Peter. The announcement of of good news about uh, an event that will change the world, which is the coming of Christ, first and second. It's why we are grieved by various trials, that our faith may be perfected. Peter says, uh, just to read this quickly, because I know the time is, is, is waning on here. Uh, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was in them, uh, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. Now, the, the prophets said, and they knew that the Messiah would come. They prophesied it. They didn't know when. They didn't know that he would be crucified They didn't know that he would have to receive the cross before he received the crown. And that's why we are grieved by various trials as well, because the cross always precedes the crown. The prophets prophesied about the grace that was to come through the gospel. Peter and the other apostles prophesy about the grace that is now here and is active in the world. It is a grace that we experience in every generation of Christ followers lives now in the light of that grace. And we also live with the future in mind. We may not see the fulfillment of our hope. That's why we pass on our faith to our kids. Because we may not see the return of Christ, but they might. And so we want to prepare them for that. We want to prepare our friends and our other family members as well. We have this God-given responsibility to serve the next generation Because we're not here to serve ourselves. We're here to serve God. By telling people about what he's done. We're called by him to pass on the legacy of our faith. And our faithfulness by following Christ. And to do that. God has seen to it. To give us everything we need. To follow Jesus. Through all the storms of life. Because we have an anchor. We have an anchor that keeps the soul. Steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened. To the rock which cannot move grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love you think about that let's pray